I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, for our Old Testament scripture reading this morning. In this passage and in chapter 65, Paul will make reference in 2 Corinthians to the work of the Spirit as inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who brings about by his death and resurrection a new exodus and a new creation. Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Notice that Exodus language there. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, and they lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished and quenched like a wick. The Lord says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert. Now down to verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And in chapter 65, Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah, for behold, I create a new heavens, and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered, nor shall they come into mind. Now, if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so we give our attention this morning to verses 16 and 17. We'll begin reading in verse 14, however, for some context here. Paul, again, chapter 5, been focusing on the work of the Spirit as it culminates in the resurrection of the dead on the last day, and the final judgment. He now begins to speak the new creation that is ushered in by the Spirit on account of the work of Christ. Again, let's begin in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and merciful Father, we do pray that you would illuminate our hearts, that we might understand the depths of what it means to be in Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I remember when I was uh, in high school or in junior high, I would come home from school, and usually in the afternoon I'd turn on the TV, and at least a couple times a week would watch TV preachers on the television. Um, some good, some uh, not so good. Uh, I think what was always striking for me was any of the TV preachers that you would see on TV. There's never really a TV preacher who's a pastor of a church uh, of 50 people. It's always a pastor of a church of several thousands of people. 
Numbers aren't a bad thing, but of course I do recall thinking, man, what a powerful ministry. Look how big their church is. They must be doing something right. I think even the godliest preachers uh, these days are tempted to think along similar lines. Evaluating uh, the success of a ministry based off external criteria, perhaps the size of the congregation, uh, the number of Twitter followers that pastor has, the conference circuits that he speaks on, the number of books that he has authored that has made its way uh, to the top ten list on Amazon, you name it. Again, these aren't necessarily bad things. I'm not preaching against uh, any of those things. But one of the things that we need to see uh, and understand is that is not the criterion for understanding or evaluating a fruitful ministry. You think of Paul's letters to the various churches. You think of the, Paul's letter to the Church of Rome. You uh, uh, read any commentary, and it's estimated there's probably no more than a dozen, maybe two dozen members uh, in the congregation of Rome when Paul is writing. Uh, the, these are home, uh, the church of Corinth is big enough, according to 1 Corinthians, to be meeting in somebody's house. So clearly we can't determine size. We can't make size a determinant of a faithful ministry. And yet Paul has experienced these very criticisms, those so-called super apostles, these guys that he is writing about, these, these uh, spiritual, so-called spiritual leaders who have infiltrated the ranks of the Corinthian church, and they've judged ministerial effectiveness according to outward appearances. As you recall last week, Paul even says they boast in outward appearances. I believe it's verse 12. They Quite literally, the Greek text says they boast in the face. Here are people who are uh, um, uh, determining spiritual success and vitality off of their own personal, mystical, spiritual experiences based off the, the public rhetorical skills of the minister, perhaps even the public opinion of those in the community of that particular congregation. And yet this morning we find Paul reminding the church that the Scriptures give a very different criterion for evaluating ministerial and churchly success. Here Paul gives that criterion for evaluating not only his ministry, but any other ministry under the new covenant. And that criterion is this, that it must be seen in light of the new creation. Of course, we have to ask ourselves, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by this phrase that he uses twice, according to the flesh? I think it's critical that we understand the meaning of that for us to understand what he means by the new creation. So we'll take our time this morning evaluating these two key concepts. First, we'll consider that of the flesh in verse 16. And secondly, we will consider that of the new creation with which Paul contrasts the flesh in verse 17. Well, this is a particularly uncommon phrase, to know somebody according to the flesh. You don't really hear uh, somebody say that in kind of common parlance these days. You don't say, hey, do you know Jim Bob down the street? Oh, yeah, I know Jim Bob according to the flesh. It's just not something that you hear. It is is a phrase that is somewhat foreign to us. If somebody uh, were to, to use that phrase to me, I would think, what kind of oddball are you? But it reminds us the Bible was written in a very different context. It was written over 2,000 years ago. This letter, at least, was written uh, two, two, about 2,000 years ago. 
And there are certain concepts and phrases that we have to take the time to evaluate so we can understand what the author is saying so we can know what God himself is communicating to us through his word. So what does Paul mean by this phrase, according to the flesh? It's a, not necessarily a difficult phrase to translate, but conceptually it can mean a whole host of different things. If, uh, if you use the NIV, and this is not a criticism of the NIV, the NIV translate, the, translates this phrase about 48 different ways in the New Testament because it shows up so often. Again, it's not a criticism of the NIV. The NIV is trying to relate what this meaning is in the various uh, ways in which it's used. And what that should tell us is that there's a certain elasticity to this particular meeting, meaning. I know this is going to sound somewhat like, a, uh, like maybe a word study or a Bible study, but this morning I think it's important to know what Paul means by this. What does Paul mean when he says to know somebody according to the flesh? Paul uses this phrase uh, in at least, you know, broadly speaking, three different ways. So we need to evaluate each of these ways to figure out which, which way Paul is using this. Perhaps the most common way one of the most common ways in which Paul uses this language is when it's speaking to physical kith or kin, speaking of a family tree or genealogy. Think of Romans chapter 1, when Paul speaks of Jesus being descended from David according to the flesh. By that, Paul simply means that Jesus was a descendant of David. He's of David's family tree and history. Paul in Romans 9 will also speak of his own uh, kinsmen of, of uh, national Israel as being his kinsmen according to the flesh. So that's one option. But when we look at the context here, that doesn't seem to be what Paul means here. Therefore, we no, re, no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Therefore, we no longer regard Christ according to the flesh. When Paul's speaking to a, a pagan church, or not a pagan church, a church from a pagan city, uh, dry largely of Greeks, so none of them would have considered Jesus to be uh, an ethical sibling, you know, a, a, an ethnic sibling. They're, they're the Gentiles. So I don't think that's what Paul means right here. So what's, what's our other options? Another option that Paul uses when he uses the phrase, uh, according to the flesh, sometimes he speaks of the sinful lifestyle of a particular individual. You think of Romans chapter 8. Where Paul says this, that those who walk according to the flesh shall die. So is that what Paul means here? I don't think so. Why would Paul say that we no longer regard Christ according to the flesh? In other words, why would Paul say we no longer regard Christ as living a sinful lifestyle? Hopefully Paul has never regarded Christ in that respect. And so we have a third option before us, and the option that I think is the best option it's an option that we see a phrase, a, a concept which Jesus himself uses in John 8, Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11. And here it refers to external circumstances or outward appearances. You, you recall in verse 12, Paul has already been talking about that as it is. His opponents, those so-called spiritual leaders, are people who boast in outward experiences, people judging according to external criteria rather than what is in the heart. Remember, Paul has been driving home for five chapters now that the great benefit of the new covenant is that the Spirit has been poured out in our hearts in fulfillment of the great promises of the prophets, particularly Jeremiah chapter 31. 
In Ezekiel chapter 16 and 37, though the outpouring of the Spirit, now the law will be inscribed no longer on tablets of stone simply, but now the law of God has been inscribed on the human heart in a way that we are now able to walk in God's ways. And yet, Paul's opponents are not judging the ministry of the Spirit according to the great Old Testament promise, but they're still judging whether or not the Spirit is at work according to that external criteria. And they've missed the work of the Spirit altogether. They're judging according to appearances. How easy is it for us to judge according to appearances? It's something that the people of God have always struggled with. When you read the Old Testament, think of 1 Samuel, for instance, when, when uh, Israel demands a king and the Lord says, okay, I'll give you a king. And they're given Saul, and here's a guy who stands head and shoulders above everyone else. Here's a guy who's kind of a walking male model. Here's a guy who is courageous in battle. Here's a guy who leads according to all the external criterion. Here's a guy who's very photogenic. And yet he leads the nation into apostasy. And so the Lord rips the empire, the kingdom from Saul's hands. And the Lord tells Samuel, I am going to give the kingdom to another. One from uh, the line of Jesse. And so he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. And Jesse begins looking at all the brothers who have lined up. And he goes, ah, surely this must be the king. The oldest, no, not him. Goes, keeps going down the line. The Lord keeps saying, no, 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 no. And then finally, he makes it to David. And what is it that everybody says? Him? This little pipsqueak? He's a little runt. He's a sheep herder. Why, why would he ever be the king? And what is the Lord's response to the house of Jesse? What is the Lord's response to Samuel? The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance But God looks at the heart. Paul's point here is that the cross must reorient how we understand the work of God in the church. The work of God here on earth. The cross becomes the criterion. It becomes the spectacles through which we see the new covenant at play. You, read, you think of uh, Isaiah in chapter 53 when Isaiah foretells of the work of Christ. Even Isaiah himself says, I didn't see this coming. That the Messiah had no majesty that we would find him to be of any worth. Everybody would look upon him and go, really? He's been smitten, he's been stricken, he's been afflicted. Clearly he's been cursed and not loved by God. That's the very thing Isaiah prophesies, that when people look on Christ, they will not go, this is not a man sent by God. This is not the man who would accomplish what God has promised his people. You see, over and over again in the Gospels, the people are expecting a military conqueror, one who would ride in and overthrow the Romans. They are not expecting the Son of God to hang and die on a cross. You know, that's exactly what happens, and this is why Paul has already told the church of Corinth in his first letter, that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who do not believe. It's a stumbling block to those who pursue wisdom because it inverts human wisdom. It demonstrates that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. It turns everything on its heels. 
And so when we evaluate the ministry, we must evaluate ministry in light of the cross because ministers will replicate in terms of what their service looks like, a ministry that is patterned after the cross. So often a true and faithful ministry is not going to be a ministry of triumph and glory. It's not going to be all candy canes and unicorns. It is a ministry of suffering unto death. Paul's entire criterion that he's been telling Corinth now for several letters is that Christianity is seen as a worthless religion in the eyes of a watching world. Why would anyone worship a God whose chief triumph is hanging on a cross? This is Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, great uh, criticism of Christianity only a century ago. Christianity is weak. It does not support the triumph of the Superman, the man who would overcome the world by his own act of the will. Why would the foolishness of the cross be of any appeal to anybody? What Paul is telling Corinth is if he says, if, if you're asking the same question or, or one like it, you are still judging according to outward appearances. As Luther would say in Heidelberg 1518, You have not become a theologian of the cross, yet you're still a theologian of glory. That's what Paul says. We we can't even regard Christ's earthly ministry according to the flesh. We cannot superimpose worldly standards to evaluate the effectiveness of Christ's ministry. Because as Christ said over and over again, his entire ministry is one that leads up to Calvary. The church of Corinth continues to judge by externals. They have still not learned the message of the cross. They're still letting the world shape their understanding. So we have to ask ourselves, are we doing the same? Have we fallen prey to the same trap as Corinth has? Think about it. We, we live in such an image-driven society where we see a healthy church determined by the numbers and the finances, the facts and the figures, the number of published materials. Again, I'm not criticizing ministries that have, I'm I'm really thankful for uh, churches that have ministries like that, that that are able to pump out such great material for the sake of the churches. To be honest, I'd really love to have Westminster burst at the seams. There's a, you know, you look at all these empty seats and and you you look at the, the number of people that can fit in this building and you pray, Lord, we long to see your church is full. We would love to see unbelievers come to saving faith, not simply sheep stealing from other congregations, but for unbelievers to actually come and hear the gospel and repent and believe. It's a great longing we should all have. And yet, how easy is it for that longing to simply shift ever so slightly, to not, uh, not into a concern uh, that unbelievers would... Uh, come to saving faith, but uh, that we would have maybe some type of imprint on the culture here, that we would have some type of swaying power in the community, uh, that we would have some form of fame or notoriety where the, the focus no longer ceases to be on the exaltation and glory of Christ, but maybe on our own prestige and hopeful power in, here in the valley. All these external factors be it wealth, looks, national prestige. Those things work well if you're running a Fortune 500 company, if you want to try to you know, uh, make it on the NASDAQ. 
those criterion don't mean anything for the church because we operate according to the principles of a different kingdom and a different set of laws. So here we have a very practical question that, that Paul is continuing to, drive at, to, to draw out for the church. What is your criteria for judging and evaluating Christian leadership? Is it the pastor or the elder's charisma or charm? Is it his own uh, kind of persona where he's able to draw in the crowd by his magnetic personality? Or the witty, or the, or the witty jokes that he, that he gives? Is it simply the fact that he's being authentic, man? Or is the criteria godliness? of calling the people to pursue holiness in fear of the Lord. What's the proper criteria? Is it the cross or is it something else? And so, see, I think we are finally in a position to understand what it is that Paul is getting at when he uses this phrase to regard someone or to even to regard Christ according to the flesh. What Paul is saying is we can't regard ourselves. We don't even regard Christ according to external criteria. We do not evaluate Christ's ministry according to worldly standards of success. Why? Because the cross, which looks like a total failure in the eyes of the world, is the means by which Christ has triumphed over sin and Satan. And that the cross has affected this new life in which we are called to walk, as we saw in verse 15. That Christ has died for all so that what we might live no longer for ourselves, that we might walk in accordance with the contours of what Paul calls here in verse 17, the new creation. This isn't the first time that Paul has spoken of the the benefits of the new covenant in this way. You remember chapter 4 when Paul speaks of the nature of ministerial preaching where Paul compares the preaching of the gospel to the act of creation on the very first day of creation. What is the analogy that Paul draws? Just as God spoke, let there be light, and boom, light shined into darkness, so now God has spoken through the ministry of the gospel, and now, boom, the light of Christ has shined in our hearts so that the new creation has dawned through the ministry of the gospel. It's the great work of the Spirit to bring the dead to life. That the bringing of the dead to life does not begin on the last day of the resurrection, but it begins now through the preaching of the word as the Lord, as the Spirit begins to regenerate the hearts of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and enlivens their will and their understanding to freely embrace Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And so the work of the new creation begins there, and it is completed on the last day. Here we find that the preaching of the gospel is so powerful that it is nothing less than the enactment of the new creation Preaching of the gospel doesn't look flashy. According to external criterion, how would this ever be the means of drawing together such a large religion or population? Why wouldn't you try to conquer by the sword? 
as you see with Islam in the 7th century. Why wouldn't you try uh, to conquer through any of these other ways, but rather it is through the foolishness of the cross that Christ continues to grow his church. Looks rather idiotic according to worldly external criteria, yet it is the very thing that draws people. In fact, it is the only thing that will bring people through safely through the coming judgment. What a powerful statement that we have before us. For everyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. Christ is the door to the new world. This is not simply a nice allegory. Paul is not sitting around on Saturday evening at the local Starbucks trying to rack his brain to come up with some nice analogy for what the preacher does so that the preacher can feel somewhat important. Rather, what, I, what Paul is doing is he's summarizing the whole of Isaiah. If you don't know the book of Isaiah, I encourage you to dig deep. In the early church, it was used and quoted so often, it was often referred to as the fifth gospel. In the book of Isaiah, you can find the whole doctrine of Christ there, everything from the virgin birth to the second coming of Christ. And what Paul is doing is in a simple phrase, he is summarizing the latter half of the book of Isaiah. Actually, the whole of Isaiah. He's not simply proof texting one particular phrase. He's bringing into view the whole message of Isaiah. What is it that Isaiah had foretold? That Israel, on account of her sin, would be exiled, cast into the wilderness, dispersed to the four corners of the earth, and yet the Lord in his mercy would not leave them there. Rather that he would send a king born of the line of David, born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, 1, who would be clothed with the spirit in power, chapter 9 and chapter 11, upon whom the government would sit upon his shoulders, not simply the government of an earthly throne in Jerusalem, but one who would inherit the heavenly kingdom from on high. One who, by his death and resurrection, who suffers as a suffering servant, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 61, would bear the sins of many and by it inaugurate a new exodus where the streams open up in the desert. As we had read earlier in Isaiah 42, and a highway is made in the desert to draw the people back. And it culminates in Isaiah 65 and 66, this new exodus, whereby the Messiah draws back the redeemed from exile. It culminates in a work of new creation, whereas the Messiah appears and judges his enemies once and for all. The Lord says, behold, I'm doing a new thing, where I'll blot out your transgressions and I create a new heavens and a new earth. That is the backdrop here to verse 17. So that when Paul says, when anyone is in Christ, the great benefits of the new creation have begun. As we've seen, the great forgiveness of sins, the pardon of sins found through Christ as he's poured out his spirit, as the knowledge of Christ comes to expand to cover the face of the waters. That's Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 4. Christ has come here. Paul brings into mind both Genesis and Isaiah. That though the people of God have once been exiled and alienated, now in Christ they have been reconciled. It's the great trajectory and movement of all of human history. 
That Christ has come to reconcile sinners through the blood shed at the cross. And Paul is saying that through his ministry, the new creation has begun to break into the old order. That the new creation does not simply come on the last day, but it's been inaugurated through the preaching of the gospel as the light of Christ begins to dawn in our own hearts. The dawning of the new age has come through the heralding of the gospel. And so all who are regenerated by the Spirit are made new creations in Christ. That's why the preaching of the gospel is so critical. It's why it's so necessary. And for all who trust in Christ, we're no longer part of that old sinful order. The old is passing away. Yet a new heavenly order is being established, though we do not yet see it. The Spirit is secretly at work, inwardly at work, renewing our hearts, preparing us for entrance into that land where righteousness dwells. And so ministry should not be measured by outward appearance, those externals found according to the old created order. It's not measured by health or wealth or material prosperity or worldly acclaim. Rather, ministry and its effectiveness should be measured by the inbreaking of the new creation manifested in the repentance of sinners and the proclamation of the gospel. The moral overhaul of the Spirit as He works in the hearts of sinners through the preaching of the Word. And that is the task we have before us. This is the mission of the church. To preach sin and to preach salvation in Christ. There is only one way to flee the coming wrath. There is only one way to enter into this new world and that is to flee to Christ Christ who bore our sins at the cross that we might be reconciled to a holy God. That the benefits of Christ's death are not benefits that are earned by you having to do some series of hoop jumping to earn those benefits, to merit those things. It's something that can only be received through simple faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we preached week in and week out that Christ has come that we no longer regard success according to these worldly standards, but we have to regard everything in light of the cross. See, it is at the cross that the level field, that, that, that the playing field is leveled. It is at the cross that you are no longer reckoned according to past sins. It is at the cross that you are no longer evaluated even according to your own present accomplishments. Because those things are not the cause of our boasting. As Paul himself says, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is not looking to create spiritual superstars. God is looking to reconcile sinners and to turn them into saints, to adopt strangers as sons, to fashion servants whose life is marked off by a new walk, who walk according to a different code of conduct, who march according to the beat of a different drum, where we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who has brought in new life by his very death and resurrection from the dead. 
And so we preach that for anyone who trusts in Christ, he is now in Christ. And he now begins to partake in those benefits that Christ has secured for his people. That's the very thing that we've confessed in our confession of faith this morning. What are the benefits that we have in Christ? They are benefits that are not simply benefits that we will receive on the last day that that is true, such as resurrected bodies, these self-same bodies resurrected. But we have benefits now that we receive through faith and faith alone, benefits such as justification, the pardon of sin, the being clothed in Christ's righteousness, the fact that we receive adoption as sons, We're now given the great privilege to approach the throne of God and call Him Father. And sanctification, the great promise and hope and guarantee that the Spirit has been lavished in our hearts to wash us clean, to wash us of our shame and our sin, and to shape us to look more like our Savior even though according to external circumstances, uh, the world might want to say otherwise. How is it that uh, you can claim that Christ has begun these things when we too will also die? Unless the Lord returns, I'm one day going to die. You're buried in a grave. How can we say that Christ reigns? Well, it's because He's promised. And yet the work of the new creation has already begun in such a way that not even death will snuff out that great hope. You see, this is the criterion for the Spirit-filled Christian. This is the criterion for real Christian spirituality. Not ecstatic experiences, not material wealth and prosperity in this life, not a large following on social media, but rather godliness. But the Spirit now begins to work in our hearts to hope in Christ And that we might be made holy and partake in a holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So let's pray this morning that we would boast in nothing but the cross of Christ for that reason. Gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would bless your word. And that this morning you would work in our hearts greater faith. That you would even use the Lord's Supper to remind us that this is a victory that is not secured by us but has already been accomplished at Calvary. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.